As you know, our theme for this month is prayer, and uh, we've been having prayer here at the church daily, and appreciate all of you that have participated in that, and even though those of you that couldn't come here to pray, appreciate you praying wherever you are. We really uh, want to undergird everything that we do here with prayer. That's so important. In fact, I don't know anything more important, amen? And so we want to continue that. I've been talking to you about prayer. The one thing that the disciples of Jesus asked him to teach them about was prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. And um, I began the first message on this series uh, talking about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us three ways to approach the Father. First of all, for our petitions, we, we approach him as Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And we begin listing our petitions to God. We approach him as Father. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God, our heavenly Father, knows how to give good gifts to his children so much more even than we know how to give good gifts to our children. And then last Sunday I talked to you about intercessory prayer, and Jesus taught us to approach God as a friend to a friend. Abraham was called a friend of God. Jesus said to his disciples, I no more call you servants, I call you friends. There is a level of intimacy with God where you can address him as friend. And Jesus taught, in fact, if you read the Lord's Prayer of Matthew, then go over to Luke, and as soon as he finished, he ties it to the Lord's Prayer by saying that, uh, uh, that um, uh, there was a man who went to his friend, and he said to him, a friend of mine has come in his journey, and I don't have anything to set before him. So it's a friend that's interceding for a friend, and he approaches God as a friend. Lord, um, I have a friend. And being a friend of God, you give those petitions to God. Today I want to talk to you, and, and actually I'm just laying the groundwork today. It'll take me a, probably two more services to get this particular um, teaching. But the third way that Jesus told us to approach God is as a judge. Um, he gave us the story of the woman who went to the unjust judge and uh, she was pleading her case. And then Jesus finished that story up by saying um, that while that unjust judge took a lot of time, in fact had to be persuaded to help that woman, God, your heavenly Father, will answer you speedily. When you approach him in the courts of heaven and you lay your petition your, your case before God, and God judges, he will give you a quick answer. And uh, so I want to talk to you about that today. First, before I get into the message, there, there are so many great, great, great men of prayer throughout all the ages. I just love to read the biographies and autobiographies of great men of prayer. One of my favorite is a man called George Mueller. Have any of you ever heard of George Mueller? few of you have George Mueller. Um, let me, he, he lived way back in the 1800s. But let me read you just a little bit about George Mueller. And then I will get into this because he knew how 
to get his petitions before the court of heaven and get a speedy answer. George Mueller was born on the 27th of September in 1805. He died on March the 10th, 1998. He was 92 years, six months old. Was a Christian evangelist, and he was the director of Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He cared for, listen to this, 10,024 orphans during his lifetime. And he provided educational opportunities for the orphans to the point that he was even accused by some of raising the poor orphans above the national standard of Britain. <laughs> Can you imagine that? They complained to him. They said, good time of living. The kids that you raise in the orphanage are so much better educated than the average child in England. And uh, that was a complaint. He established 117 schools during his lifetime. And he offered Christian education to over 120,000 young people. Can you imagine that? The work of Mueller and his wife with the orphans began in 1836 when the preparation of his own rented home on 6 Wilson Street in Bristol for the accommodation of 30 girls. Soon after, three more houses in Wilson Street were furnished, not only for girls, but also for boys and even younger children, eventually increasing the capacity of children that he would care for to 130. In 1845, as the growth continued, the neighbors began to complain about the noise and disruption to the public utilities, so Mueller decided that a separate building designed to house 300 children was necessary. And in 1849 at Ashley Down, Bristol, the new home was opened. By the 26th of May, 1870, there were 1,722 children being accommodated in five homes that he had built. Now listen to this. Through all this, Mueller never requested financial support, not from anybody. He never asked anybody for a penny nor did he go in debt, even though the five homes cost more than a mil, uh, 100,000 British pounds, which today would translate into several million dollars. Many times he received unsolicited food donation only hours before they were needed to feed the children, further strengthening his faith in God. Mueller was in constant prayer that God would touch the hearts of donors to make provision for the orphans. For example, one well-documented occasion, thanks was given for breakfast when all the children were seated at the many tables, even though there was nothing in the house for them to eat. As they finished praying, a baker knocked at the door, and he had brought sufficient fresh bread to feed everyone. And a milkman gave them plenty of fresh milk because his milk cart broke down in front of the orphanage. <laughs> He never asked for a penny. He only asked God. He wrote in his journal, a brother in the Lord came to me this morning, and after a few minutes of conversation, he gave me 2,000 British pounds for furnishing one of our orphan homes. Now I'm able to meet all of the expenses. In all probability, I will have several hundred pounds more than I need. The Lord not only gives as much as is absolutely necessary for his work, but he also gives abundantly. This blessing filled me with inexplicable delight. 
And he has given me a full answer to my thousands of prayer during the 1191 days that he had been praying. Once while he was crossing the Atlantic, he was coming to North America at the time, it was August of 1877, the ship ran into a thick fog. He explained to the captain that he needed to be in Quebec by the following afternoon. But Captain Joseph E. Dutton said that he was slowing the ship down for safety's sake, and Mueller's appointment would just have to be missed. Mueller asked to use the chart room to pray for the lifting of the fog. The captain followed him, claiming it would be a waste of time. After Mueller prayed a very simple prayer, the captain started to pray, but Mueller stopped him, partly because of the captain's unbelief, but mainly because he believed the prayer had already been answered. Mueller said, Captain, I have known my Lord for more than 50 years, and there is not one instance that I have failed to have an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, you'll find that the fog has lifted. When the two men went back to the bridge, they found that the fog indeed had lifted, and Mueller was able to keep his appointment. The captain became a Christian shortly after. Isn't that amazing? Now there's somebody that knew how to operate in the court of heaven with prayer. Let me ask you, how many of you would like to know how to operate so that your prayers would be answered like those of George Mueller and other great men of prayer? Any, anybody here would like to, would, would, would that be a desire of your heart? Would you like to know it? Well, I want to talk to you about that today because God has a judicial system in which he operates. God is a just God. In fact, if God were not a just God, this universe would be in serious trouble because he operates it in the scope of his justice. Uh, one of my, I'll give you my first point. I want to talk to you about a judge. To have a court, you got to have a judge, right? So you got a judge. I want to tell you that there's a judge. Early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, the second part, I love this verse of Scripture. It says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I can promise you this morning that the judge, and that's talking about God, the judge of all the earth will do right. You may be sitting here this morning and feel like you've been mistreated, taken advantage of, abused, somebody's beat you out of some money, or somebody has beat you out of a promotion that you deserved, or somebody's taken advantage of you in one way or another, let me tell you, the judge of all the earth will do right. Don't ever let what happens to you in this life get you bent all out of joint and cause you to get discouraged and cause you to lose out with God because there is a judgment day coming. And the judge of all the earth will do what's right. Everything's going to be taken care of. Amen? Every inequity is going to be brought up to par. You can count on that. The judge of all the earth shall do right. In Genesis chapter 30 and verse 6, Rachel, you might remember Rachel. She was one of the um, wives of Jacob. He had two wives, Leah and, Jacob, uh, and Rachel. And uh, Rachel was um, struggling because um, um, she, wasn't she couldn't have children. And in that day, that was a problem with society. And Leah uh, was having children, one right after the other. So Rachel went before the court of heaven. 
And here's what she said. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice, and he's given me a son. She took her case to the judge of all the earth. Let me give you one more scripture, and then I'll move on. In Psalms chapter 26, verse 1, this is David speaking, and he said, judge me, O Lord. He's inviting God. He said, God, I want you to step into this situation. I want you to judge this case. I want you to judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity, and I have trusted also in the Lord. Therefore, I shall not slide. Now, here's what's interesting to me. I have found at least five times in David's life where he asked for God to step in and judge in his behalf. He said, Lord, I, I want you to judge. I don't want the judgment of man. I want your judgment, Lord. Five times at least. There may be more that, that he had. So, so there is a judge. Do we understand that? Everybody got that? There is a judge. There is a judge. He's, the, he's God. He judges the whole earth. Then you've got a courtroom. And I want you to see the courtroom. In the Bible, there are several men who saw the courtroom in heaven. Moses is one. In fact, Moses established the tabernacle and later the temple was built after what they saw in the courtrooms of heaven. They, they got a vision of that. So Moses saw that. And uh, Daniel saw the courtroom of heaven. Let me read it to you from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, notice that's capitalized, it's talking about God, it's a title of God. The Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and his hair, uh, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. That's what Daniel saw. Daniel had been fasting and praying. God was about to open to him revelation and insight that would give him prophetic words that will last all the way to the end of the age. In fact, we are seeing prophecies in our lifetime that Daniel prophesied. We're seeing some of those come to pass now, and there are yet more to come. You can take Daniel from the Old Testament and couple it with revelations from the New Testament, and you have the majority of prophetic utterances to the future of this world and what will happen to planet Earth and to the human family. But Daniel saw the court in session in heaven. You say, well, preacher, that's Old Testament. Well, let me give you some New Testament. Now, now I, I hope I'm not boring you to death this morning trying to lay this foundation, but if we don't get this, if we don't understand this, the next couple Sundays will make no sense to you. I'll, I'll have to put it on this foundation. So that get, be, stay with me, if you will. And, uh, and, and, and if you hear your neighbor snoring, just help them out a little bit with an elbow or something. And, and uh and <laughs> we'll keep going. But I want to take you to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Sounds a lot like what Daniel saw, doesn't it? 
Daniel saw a thousand thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. Well, a writer of Hebrews just said an innumerable company. In other words, he said, I looked around and said, good night. I can't even count them. There's so many. He saw that innumerable company of angels. He come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I used to read that verse, those verses of Scripture there, and, and I, I just, from a cursory reading of it, I just assumed that this is something we're going to see in heaven in the sweet by and by when we die in the sky. Um, but listen, folks, to, to, to do that, you have to take this Scripture out of context. So let's get it in context. This is the 12th chapter of Hebrews. You realize that when they wrote this letter to the Hebrew Christians, they were not writing it chapter and verse. It was one book, one letter that was written to them. So let's back up to the 11th chapter because the 11th and 12th chapter of Hebrews is tied together, and I'll show you how in just a moment. But let's back up to the, to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. How many of you know what the 11th chapter of Hebrews is talking about? It's talking about faith. It's the hall of fame of the faithful. Here's how it starts. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than uh, Cain. Um, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead yet st uh, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, listen to this, but without faith, verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not, seen, not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. So, so you see, by faith, it starts off giving you a definition of faith, and then it starts talking about faith. By faith, Abel worshiped God. By faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith, Noah worked with God. And then he goes on to talk about others. He talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Rahab, and Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and David, and Samuel, and all of the prophets. But here's, he ties it to us in the, uh, in the last two verses of this chapter. You got all this list of men and women of faith, the great hall of faith. Then verse 39, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, say for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. What he's saying is the, all these men and women died in faith looking forward to the time that Jesus would come. But we now look back to Jesus. He came. It was fulfilled. And so 
they, their faith was tied to what our faith looks back to, and we come together at the cross of Calvary and at the empty tomb of the risen Lord. Praise God. We're together in this if we know the Lord. Makes us all part of the family of God. How many of you are glad to be a part of the family of God this morning? Give him praise for that. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Now, I told you that chapter 11 and chapter 12 are tied together. First thing I wanted you to know is that chapter 11 is not just talking about them. It's talking about us as well. It's tied, uh, tying our faith to it. But then chapter 12 starts off like this. Therefore, we also... How many know what you're supposed to do when you see a therefore? You're supposed to see what it's there for. Therefore ties it to chapter 11. In other words, what he's saying is because of what you just read in chapter 11, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now with that in mind, let's go back to those verses I read a while ago about the throne room of heaven. By, but it, it's chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Not that you're going to come to that someday after you die. You've come to it now. By faith, we come to that place, to an innumerable company of angels. Did you know there are angels that are working to carry out the will of God? And some of them have been assigned to, to, to you and to me as children and heirs of the promise of God to help us get the things that we need that God wants us to have. To the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge, say judge, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator, say mediator. That's also a legal term. It's synonymous with advocate. Maybe you would understand it better to say attorney, to Jesus the attorney, to Jesus the lawyer, to Jesus the advocate to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So <clears throat> I want to talk to you for the next few minutes and then for the next couple of weeks about how you, how you bring your prayers. I'm talking about prayer and God's justice system. How you get your prayers before God so that you can get a speedy answer from God. So let's look at the courtroom and how we operate in the courtroom of heaven. First of all, there's a judge. There's also an accuser. How many of you understand that we have an accuser? Did you know that? I'll show it to you in Scripture in a moment. Then there is a defendant. At least three things. There's more than that, of course. There are witnesses and other things as well. But we're going to deal with these three. First of all, the judge, the accuser, and the defendant. Let me give you an example in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Great man of God. 
Drop down to verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan came into the courtroom of heaven to accuse. Look at verses 8 to 10. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the, on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God, shuns evil? Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have, have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his, uh, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. You see what the accuser is doing with Job here? Satan showed up in the courtroom of heaven and presented a case against Job. He said, Job worships you for the wrong reason. The only reason Job worships you is because he's your pet. You got him surrounded. You got him protected. You're blessing him every way he turns. Everybody would worship you if that was the case. You, you, just, you, just, you just let down that hedge for a few minutes, and Job will curse you to your face. Now, I don't have time to go into all of it, but most of you who've read the book of Job, you know exactly what happens here. Job went through a severe trial. In fact, God did allow the hedge to be taken down. And Satan did come in, destroyed everything that he had, everything, took everything, all of his wealth, all of his fame, all of his prosperity, even killed his children, all 10 of them. He destroyed his house. When he even destroyed his health, Job wound up sitting on an ash heap, scraping his boils. He had boils from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet scraping the balls with a piece of, of, of pottery. And that, that was the case. But we also know the end of Job. How many of you read the end of the book of Job? You know the rest of the story. But let, let me tell you something. When you get to chapters 40 and 41 in Job, you find the judge of all the earth looking at this man that he has declared, God knows his heart. That, he would have never allowed that trial if he hadn't have known that Job, his heart was right. The devil was falsely accusing him. But God calls Job up and, and helps him to understand the workings of the courtroom of heaven. One of the things Job discovered was that he'd been operating in fear. You go back to Job chapter 3 and verse 25. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened unto me. Listen, folks, if you're going to get your prayers answered, you've got to come in faith. Did, did, did you get that a while ago when I read from Hebrews chapter 11? Verse 6 said, without faith it's impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe. You got to believe that he is, and you got to believe he's a good God. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you've got the image of a God that you're scared to death of, you've got the wrong image of God. Now, you need to respect God. There's a healthy fear 
that is a reverential fear. That's respect. But God is a good God. And his desire is for the blessings to be upon his children. And fear, I used to think doubt was the opposite of faith. I've come to believe the older I get that fear is the opposite of faith. Because when you live in fear, then you're actually allowing to come into your spirit the idea that God may be a good God, but he may not be good to me. God may bless everybody else, but he may not bless me. God may love everybody else, but he probably loves them more than he does me. And when you allow that fear to come, and you're afraid that God won't come through on time, or you're afraid that God won't do this, that, that negates faith. That's why perfect love cast out fear, the Bible said. The Bible said that fear has torment. Fear is not of God. Fear is of the devil. That's the reason you need to get in this word when you feel fear coming against you. There's over 365 fear knots in the Bible. Start reading those. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Don't allow fear to get in your life. It will negate your faith. To operate in faith, you've got to get rid of fear. Job, you're a perfect man. You're sinless. You, 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 you walk up right before me like no man on the face of the earth right now. But you've got to get rid of that fear. And he did. He dealt with that. Amen? And, and in fact, God taught him some other things too. God taught him about how important it is to forgive. Remember David... <laughs> Remember Job? Remember Job had some friends. Y'all remember those? He had some friends that came to see him. Friends. Put that in quotes. Because if you've got friends like Job, you don't need no enemies, buddy. His friends, let me tell you what his friends did. They came, they came to see him at his worst point when he's sitting in the ash heap, having lost everything and scraping his boils with a piece of pottery. His friends came down and sat down in front of him, and they just stared at him for a solid week. And then when they got done staring at him for a week, they started accusing him. And they accused him of everything in the book. They said, you know, I tell you right now, Joe, but there's got to be something wrong with you somewhere. You've sinned somewhere that you hadn't repented of. You've missed the mark. And they just kept on accusing him and kept on accusing him and kept on accusing him. They accused him and accused him and accused him. Listen, I don't need friends like that. Just, you, you don't either. Those, but look at this. In Job 42, 10 and 12, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Don't forget the importance of forgiveness as it relates to prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, he said, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, or our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive. And then at the end of the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew's quote, uh, quoting of it, when he finishes and says, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, amen, he ties this to it. For, next verse, for if you forgive, 
from your heart. Every man is trespasses, then God will forgive you your trespasses. But if you don't forgive, if you don't forgive, forgiveness is vitally important. If you've got unforgiveness, you're going to be in trouble when you get in the courtroom of heaven trying to get your prayers answered. So make up your mind this morning, you're going to forgive. Turn to your neighbor and say, I forgive you. Praise God. We might have healed some marriages right there. Who knows? <laughs> I'm serious, folks. This thing of forgetting. Job got twice what he lost when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginnings, for he had now, I'm going to read these numbers, and you just divide them in half, and that's, you can go to the first part of Job, and that's what he had in the beginning. Job had more, for he had 14,000 sheep. That means he had seven in the beginning. Now he's got 14. He's got 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The only thing that's mentioned here. That isn't double the number that you find in the early chapters of Job is his children. He lost seven sons and three daughters. And in the end, God gave him seven sons and three daughters. But the Bible said that he restored double to him. So how do you get that? Worked out for the sheep, went from 7,000 to 14,000, worked out for the donkeys and cattle and all that. What happened to the children here? Well, listen, his seven sons and three daughters were in heaven. They were in paradise with God, so he hadn't lost them. God gave him seven more sons and three more daughters, so now how many sons has he got? Fourteen. And how many daughters? He got six. So he's, he does have double. He just didn't, and his wife was really happy that the Lord didn't double the number here, just, just, gave him, just gave him 10 more. You imagine if the Lord said, I'm going to give you 20 more. No, no, no. He hadn't lost the 10 that's, that's in heaven. So Job, at the end, he, he's got twice what he had in the beginning. So if, here, here's the thing, folks. When we learn how to effectively, look, George Mueller never asked a penny from a soul on this earth. He only Ask God. He knew how to operate by faith in the, in the courtroom of God, in the throne room of God. Those terms are synonymous. If you want to say throne room, if you understand that better, that'll be fine. But it, he learned how to operate there. And I'm here to tell you this morning, Job knew how to operate there. God taught him how. And he came out with twice as much in the end as he had in the beginning. If you and I will learn how to operate in the principles of the Word, when the devil steals from you, you can come out with twice in the end what you had in the beginning. Praise God. In fact, there's one scripture in the Old Testament said, if you catch a thief and you can identify him, you can make him pay seven times more than he had in the beginning. Glory to God. Seven times more than he stole from you. And that's, you need to learn how to tell the devil that. You mess with me, devil. And, and, uh, and God, the judge of all the earth, will make you pay twice what you've taken from me. I'm here to tell you, we serve a good God that's interested in us, and he'll help us. Now, I want to ask you this question, because it's about 20 minutes after 12 right now. I want to ask you this question. How many of you would like 
to learn how to operate in the throne room of heaven so that you're much more effective in your prayer life. And you're more like these people that I read to you in the Bible, more like the George Mueller of a modern day. How many of you would like, to, like that? Would you like that? I ask you again. Would you like that? Okay, be here next Sunday, and I'll, and I'll, I'll start telling you. How, I'll start sharing with you how to do it. Listen, I, 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 I'm, I'm just literally running over. I've been studying this for three years now, this one subject. And I, I'm, I'm just running over. I, I could preach here for the next two hours and, uh, and, and still have a lot more to go. But I, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm going to leave you with three things, and, and then we'll close. We'll come to the table for communion. Three things I want you to take with you today. First of all, you have an accuser. I want you to remember that. You have an accuser. Say that with me. You have an accuser. You have an accuser. Let me give you scripture for it. Revelation 12, 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. He has been cast down. Anybody looking forward to that day? There is coming a day. I'm here to tell you this morning, church, there's coming a day. When the accuser, your accuser, the accuser, God's going to put him down. And he's not going to be able to accuse you anymore. His mouth's going to be stopped. His mouth's going to be shut. But in the meantime, we need to know how to take our case before God when he accuses us so that we can come away with victory. The second thing I want you to take from this this morning is that you need to prepare for your defense. Notice I did not say you need to prepare your defense. You've got a lawyer at the right hand of God who will take care of that for you. But you need to prepare for your defense. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. I read to you a while ago from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at the first verse. But I want to go back to it and just take an excerpt out of it. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Hear me this morning, church. I'm not trying to be hard. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to help you. This idea that you can play around with sin and not get hurt is not true. I believe in grace as much as anybody in this room. And I thank God for his marvelous grace. But when you start presuming on the grace of God and feel like you can do what you want to and grace will let you slide by, you are missing the mark big time. You're going to be in trouble when you try to get your prayers through in heaven because it doesn't work that way. Remember, he is a just God and he is not going to wink at your sin any more than he does anybody else's. We don't have enough preaching today about sin. Now, I'm not trying to emphasize negativity, but I'm telling you, sin's what's destroying us. Sin's what's hurting us. Sin's what's holding us back. Sin's what's keeping us from victory. You've got to deal with the sin question. Let me give you another scripture. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's what the Bible says. It's not my idea. It's what God said. 
He said, it's not because he can't hear, it's because he will not hear. God would be an unjust God if he allowed you to walk into the throne room with sin in your life and present a request to him and him overlook your sin and go ahead and bless you on top of it. No, no, no. God's not going to do that. In fact, I like the old 1611 King James Version. It adds the word me. If I regard a sick iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That makes it real personal. I got to know this. If I'm going go to if I'm gonna go to God, I've got to deal with the sin issue. And it's time we deal with the sin issue. And listen, I'm not talking about all that sin that's out there. There's plenty of sin out there. And, I, I, and, and we, we, could, we could get carried away and talk about we could talk about all the kids that are being killed through abortion, and we can talk about the, 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 all of the sin of graft and, and, and stuff that's in the, uh, the, the enemy working to destroy the government and destroy families and, and, and <clears throat> vaping and, and drugs and alcohol, and we could talk all about that. Uh, it's out there. That's not the sin I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sin that's in the house. And, and the, the judgment begins at the house of God. If we want revival, we got to get the sin out of the house. Amen? Amen. And if you want to be victorious, and I, I, I don't, I'm not approaching this from a negative point of view. I'm telling you, folks, if you just realize what a difference it would make if you get your heart right with God. I mean, get serious with God. Quit playing around with God. Quit making it a one-time-a-week thing that you come to the house of God and tip your hat to the Lord and put your change in the offering and, and go your way and feel like you've done your religious duty. This is not a religion. Jesus died on the cross to save us, to redeem us, to wash us from our sin. Sin will kill you. The wages of sin is death. It'll kill you. We got to deal with it. Here's the good news. The third thing I want you to remember from the get rid of that sin. Praise God, you can do it. First John 1 and 9 was not written to the world out there. It was written to, to, to the saints of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, glory to God. This morning, church, if you'll just come to God and say, Lord, I confess and I repent. I want it taken care of. I want the sin out of my life. Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary to take care of my sin. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. When you get rid of sin, you'll have life, new life, new life, new joy, new peace, new blessings from God. Get rid of the sin. So put these three up here on the screen as I close. Number one, you have an accuser. Number two, prepare for your defense. And number three, get rid of sin. Praise God. If you'll do that, you'll have victory. If you do that, you, I, I'm, I'm going to begin next Sunday to show you how when you get this right, and then you come into the throne room of God, how you present your case before God to get the answer that you've been wanting. Praise God. Give God some praise this morning.